Turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. The, the first couple pages we'll do, we'll look at a bit of chapter 2, a little bit, little bit of chapter 3. Again, welcome. If this is your first time at Evergreen, we are so glad you're here. And you are joining us in the middle of our Advent series, our scriptural Advent series, which is the scriptural apologetic or the scriptural reasons for Advent. That is, what significance does Advent play in the Christian life? And not just in the Christian life, but in the world at large. We saw the, one of the titles for Jesus in the song we just sang is, O Come Desire of Nations. The Messiah is the desire of all nations, not just of the Christian church. And so we recognize that the significance of Advent extends well beyond the church, but to the nations at large, which... Here include Ontario, Canada, Smith Falls, and we're thankful for that. So that's what our Advent series is about. It's about learning as Christians to speak the language of the Bible when it comes to talking about Jesus and why he came. To use the actual thoughts of God in his word to describe and to understand who Messiah is and again, what significance he has. And so I pray that we're learning sort of the ropes of the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they tie together, how Messiah is the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation and the fulfillment of it. So let's just read a few passages here. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Let's set, a, set the Christmassy stage. We have these lovely, are these poinsettias, Sonia? We have these lovely poinsettias. We're singing Christmas songs. And to complement and enrich those things, we need to understand the Christmas story from the scriptures Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the time of Herod the king, behold, three wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And he told them, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written of the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the days of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler and he will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the three wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too go and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, uh, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then offering their treasures, they offered him gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So these wise men here, they, they come and, and they fall down and worship when they see baby Jesus or toddler Jesus uh, playing with his mother in the house at this point. They fall down and worship him. And some of you visit newborns in hospitals, and I just visited my nephew this past week, and there was no impulse in me to drop to my knees and worship this child. I got to hold him, and that was wonderful. But the impulse to worship this child is built into who he is. 
And I want to read to you the adjacent story here. It skips uh, many years into the future or a decade and a half or so or whatever it is, a couple decades. And we come to the baptism of Jesus. And this is going to be our launching point for this segment of Advent. And the title of this message is Who Can Please God? Another way of saying that might be Who is Worthy? Who is Worthy to Be Before God? Who is pleasing enough to God that he can be in God's presence, that he is worthy of God? And we look at the baptism of Jesus to answer this question. This is the child who was worshipped by the wise men, now coming to be baptized by his forerunner, by his prophet, John. Then came Jesus from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, which is his first cousin or his second cousin, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Right? That makes sense. Messiah should do the baptizing, right? not, the, not the sinful man. Uh, but you come to, to me, and Jesus answered him and said, Let it be so for now, for thus it is filling, fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now listen to this, verse 17. And behold, a voice in heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the spirit rests on Jesus and the voice from heaven, the father, the creator says, this is my son and in him I am pleased. Let me pray quickly. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now as we come to it, Lord, that you would uh, help our ears and our hearts to listen, to be transformed, and, and ultimately, Lord, to worship and praise you. And Lord, help my mouth to speak that which is true, um, to give the truth, to bring the truth forth, Lord, to prophesy by the word of God to the truths that we need. So help us now, Lord, to worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, on a personal note, and you may relate to this, one of the worst feelings that I get or that, that, that I can have is when you're working on a job or you're working at some task and you're not sure whether or not the job that you're doing is good enough. Whether or not it's meeting the standard of either your boss or your client. That's a very stressful feeling to me. I, I used to be a carpenter. And so you would go into somebody's home, which for most of us is our life investment, and you end up tearing something out. So you destroy something and then you begin to rebuild it according to some plan, according to some standard, according to some vision that they had in their mind. And if it's a bathroom, you know you cannot mess that up, especially if it's an ensuite. You don't mess up you know, mom and dad's bathroom, or if it's a front hall, or if it's a new cabinet, uh, there are just details and there's a standard of quality that people expect and they are paying you good money for it. And so when you're working away, you're wondering, I wonder if this is what they wanted. I wonder if this is good enough. I wonder if I need to go slower and do a better job or whether or not I need to go faster so that it's more affordable. It's a hard balance to strike and it's hard to know whether or not at the end of the day, and I've had my boss call me on the way home from work and say, Tim, I just dropped into that bathroom. You just grouted. It's horrible. You didn't rinse it properly. And I've had to spend the next, I have to spend the next four hours washing it with isotope. That was one of the worst calls I got. 
So there are mistakes that can be made and you can have this pressure. Am I doing well enough? And even as a pastor now, you know, what, what are the standards that I'm looking for, for am I doing a good job? Am I being the pastor that God is calling me to and according to the gifts that he's given me? It's a challenging reality. Many of you probably can relate to that in, in either your careers or even as parents or in relationships. Am I doing enough? Am, it's a stressful place to be. And I think that we can all relate to a bigger question, and that is, does God approve of my lifestyle? Does God approve of me? I mean, it's one thing if you, you know, mess up some wainscoting in a kitchen. But it's another thing if you live your entire life not knowing whether or not it has been pleasing to God. What pleases God? How much is enough? Are my choices good in God's sight? Is God going to approve me and accept me? This is one of the desperate questions of humanity. In fact, it may be the desperate question of humanity. I would say one way you could classify the Bible is that it is a book about what pleases God and about what does not please God. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible in those terms before, but that you, you can break it down in, in, in that binary reality. What pleases God? What does not please God? And also, what is he going to do about both realities? If there are things that please him and things that don't, what is God going to do about those? Thankfully, the Bible answers this question for us because as the world cries out, what pleases God? Advent speaks to the human concern of who can please God. Who can do it? And how can we know that it's been done? And so that's why we began here in Matthew chapter 3. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, I find him pleasing. God has never spoken from the sky of any one of us those words. Wouldn't it be nice, actually, if you were in, a, in an argument with your spouse and your spouse was just not getting it and God could just kind of help out and say, this is Tim and I am pleased with him. That would sort of win an argument really quick, right? But that does not happen. That only happened once. That happened once. Who was he talking about? He was talking about Messiah. He was talking about his son and his son is pleasing to him. Now, when we talk about what pleases God and what does not please God, I want you to have your finger in two places in the scriptures. Have one finger in Genesis chapter 1 and one finger in Exodus 32. If you can find those, they're very near to the beginning of your Bibles. This Advent series, you are going on a bit of a tour across your Bible. And, it's, and I'm doing that on purpose. And I know it can be harder to follow and make connections. And I... By God's grace, I pray that we are seeing the full story through all of the scriptures. But we need a baseline. We need a baseline for this idea because I've just sort of jumped to the conclusion, haven't I? I've started by showing my cards and saying, God's son is pleasing to God. Well, there you go. Well, isn't that wonderful? But how does that help us? We need to go through the whole scriptures and create a baseline for what pleases God and what does not please God and what he's going to do about those. Now, like most doctrines, we can actually find um, 
the basic understanding of them in the first 11 books of Genesis. You can find the answer to any doctrine, or at least the seed of every single doctrine, everything that we believe as Christians, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It deals with everything. Wonderfully, we have this amazing verse here. When God creates the world, in Genesis 1, verse 31, it's actually on the other page, God had finished making everything, and in 131, the scriptures tell us that God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good, which means he found it pleasing. He was the one who said it was good. It wasn't like Adam was looking on and was like, that's a pretty good job. No, God declared it good. God declared it pleasing. God declared it quality. He said, this is pleasing to me. What we see by that is that what pleases God is that when he devises something and creates something, it pleases him when it works according to his design, right? And, and you see, when a kid gets most frustrated, it's because they're trying to do something and the picture in their head is just not coming out in the blocks that they're playing with. They want to balance the, the tower this high and they want to make it twice as high and they get frustrated when their design does not accord with what their desires are. God never has that problem. God created the heavens and the earth. That's a lot of technical um, attention, right? The laws of physics, the strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, strength of gravity, the distance between the planets, all finely tuned by God, the, the heavens, the earth, all of the creeping and crawling things and the birds. And he said, it is very good. It was pleasing to him. So that's the baseline for what pleases God. It's when he devises something that it works according to his plan, that it follows the roadmap that he gives it. And so when we look forward again to that story where God says of Christ, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Again, this was the first public work of Jesus. He came out of the wilderness, being tempted by Satan and perfectly obeying God. And he comes to be baptized by John. And this is the first public uh, ministry of Jesus Christ to be baptized. And God declares his pleasure in his son. Now, taking Genesis and Jesus, these, these pleasing works of God... How do we read this? What kind of pleasure is God talking about? What kind of pleasure is he communicating to his people? I have children, and I'm, I'm pretty pleased with them for the most part. You know, I look on and I say, I, I love my children. And even when I discipline them and we have to reconcile, I still love bringing them close. And I just take such pleasure in my relationship with them and their personalities and all that God has woven into them. Is that what God is saying about Christ? That he's his kid, of course he loves him? You know? I don't think that's it. God here is not making a casual statement of preference. You know, I, I like this prophet. He's a good one. He's pretty obedient. I take pleasure in him. He's not making a casual statement of preference, and he's not making a statement of sentimental affection. Like, he's my son. I have his picture on my fridge. You know, he's just done so well. He just had this thing with Satan in the wilderness, and he nailed it. I just love him. It's not sentimental affection. 
God here is making a technical, but not detached, not an emotionless. God is not devoid of human feeling. In fact, our feelings help us understand who God is. Uh, But he's making, nonetheless, a technical statement of fulfillment, of purpose, of total satisfaction of God's design. In other words, when Christ came to maturity, walked on the earth, the word made flesh, faced Satan in the wilderness, rebutted every temptation, and obeyed God perfectly, God said of him in public, he has pleased me. This was my design for humanity. This is what I wanted to happen. This is who I made mankind to be, like him. He is pleasing. He has perfectly satisfied the design and the demands of God. And this was not just spoken, again, generically or out of the blue, but this was spoken for Israel's sake. This was in a Jewish context where the listeners were students of the Old Testament scriptures. And so they listened on, and this would have triggered all kinds of thoughts and responses from them. And one of them I want you to point your attention to is Exodus 32. Exodus 32 is one of the most clear statements of the opposite. One of God's most clear statements of the opposite reality. And that is the displeasure of God. And so, uh, sorry, I, I didn't give my outline at the beginning, but we've just covered the pleasure of God in Genesis 1 and Matthew 3, the pleasure of God being wrapped up in design and fulfillment. Now we're looking at our second part of our outline, the, dis- the displeasure of God. And we find this in Exodus chapter 32. The context here is that God has saved his people out of, his, uh, out of Egypt. They were enslaved. They were helpless. Uh, they were without hope. And God miraculously extracted them from Egypt, saved them, parted the Red Sea, and brought them into the wilderness, which was meant to be a temporary transitional waypoint until they got to the promised land. And during that time, God gave them the law. He gave them the famous law, the Ten Commandments, and also the worship ordinances, the dietary ordinances, the priestly ordinances. God gave them basically a society. He gave them a ready-made culture out of the box. God told them, this will be your culture. And during that time, after the law came, Moses was called up onto the mountain to commune with God for 40 days and receive the tablets of stone, which would serve as the reference point for Israel. That's what's going on here. And Moses said to Aaron, who was his assistant, he said to Aaron, you stay here and you, you settle the disputes that come up because they had already received the law. They just didn't have the tablets yet. So he said, now that you've got the law, Aaron, you can help the people if they're struggling while I'm up on the mountain. It's like a first trial run of the new law. See how you do. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, again, he was up there for 40 days, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving 
tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. That word play is a euphemism for sexual orgy. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly. That's an understatement. Out of the way that I commanded them, they have made for themselves a golden calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is the declaration of God's displeasure. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I might consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. In other words, I'll keep you, Moses, but I'm about to incinerate these wicked people. This is the opposite of the declaration of God over his son. The simple declaration, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, was loaded with all of the grace and approval and holiness that God could not find in Israel. He looked down and he said, Moses, go down for your people have turned aside to wickedness. And he lists their sins. He has seen everything. They've worshipped. They've created and worshipped the golden calf. They have defiled themselves sexually. They have made a false priest out of Aaron. And he says, I'm going to consume them. I'm going to destroy them. And he had every single right to do so. Why did God have the right to do this? We love to sit in judgment over God, don't we? Especially when people come and question us about our faith. How could, who does God think he is in imposing himself on humanity? Well, very quickly, if you just flipped through the book of Exodus, and you don't have to do that, but very quick, you just have to go back a few chapters. You see, number one, that he saved them. So it says that God saw the burdens that they were under in, in Egypt. He saw their struggling and their moaning, and he said, I'm going to relieve you. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Number two, he fed them in the wilderness when they were hungry. You know what God did? He sent flour, all this fine flour from heaven called manna that they collected miraculously off the, the rose petals. That's not, it wasn't actually rose petals, but they gathered this flour off the, what had gathered on the plants and they could bake bread out of this manna. It was literally food from heaven. Then when they became thirsty, God commanded water to come out of a rock to hydrate the people in the desert. All the while this is going on, God had given them a leader, someone who could shepherd them, someone who could lead them and who could be a representative before God. God provided everything that they needed. They had no excuse for abandoning God. 
Of course God was displeased. And it even it describes to us earlier when Moses had gone up, it says that they saw the glory of the Lord as a consuming fire. There was literally smoke and fire at the top of the mountain. I mean, the, the glory of God was a, was a consuming force. They had no excuse for not understanding who God was or what he uh, demanded of them. He didn't leave Moses up on the mountain for 40 days and say, I hope you guys can figure it out. He gave them the law and Aaron and then said, I'll take Moses and commune with him and give him the tablets. Israel had no excuse. In other words, their rebellion was a total and knowing assault on God's grace. It was fueled by impulse and lust. All of these actions, salvation, being fed, being watered, being watched over, should have produced praise, faithfulness, loyalty, holiness, consecration, devotion to the Lord, conformity to his law, yet it produced the opposite. It produced the total opposite. They forgot all of God's blessings and they turned right away to the false idolatry of neighboring nations. The practice of pagans. Make a statue. That'll be our God. Deuteronomy one twenty seven says to Israel, you grumbled in your tents saying, the Lord hates us. He brought us out of the wilderness to be destroyed. That's how Israel responded to salvation. The Lord hates us. The Lord hates us. That's in, um, also, they knew the law and they knew the lawgiver. They didn't just have a law, they had the lawgiver Leviticus 11.45 says, You shall not defile yourselves, for I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. It wasn't just that the, the sea happened to open and they thought, well, let's take this road. They knew that it was the Lord doing this work. Israel was fully responsible. They knew the law. They knew the law giver. And they turned aside to idolatry. They turned aside to false worship, to defiling themselves. And so God's anger burned against them. It burned against them. He said, I will consume these that I may make a great nation out of Moses. Now Moses interceded, also a picture of our Messiah, turning God's wrath away from a deserving people. That's not our focus this morning. But what we need to see is that God's anger was rooted in the unpardonable sin of misrepresenting God as evil. And if you look at that passage in the New Testament, it's a, it's one of those head scratchers where Jesus says, man can be forgiven of every sin, but this one sin you may not be forgiven of. And that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because when he cast out demons, the ruler said, he is casting out demons by the work of Satan. And Jesus said, there's only one thing that you can never recover from. And that is when you see the grace of God, when you see the work of God, you say that it's satanic, that you say that it's evil. And that's exactly what these people did when they received the work of God by the hand of God, by God's own servant. They said, God hates us. God has done evil to us. God does not love us. God's anger burns when even when he saves and shows his grace, people turn aside to their own judgments. And so his anger is burning. He is heavily displeased as a poetic understatement with Israel. And God knowingly, when he saved Israel, he knowingly decided to make them a witness to the nations, right? I have made you a light unto the nations and unto the Gentiles. That's part of Israel's identity. 
And so when he saves them, he, he means to make them a billboard. He means to make them an advertisement for who he is. That's what Christians are, right? We become uh, salespeople, this is a, which is a terrible analogy, but we become ambassadors and billboards for the work of God. That's what Israel was supposed to be too. But instead of becoming a witness, they become a public disgrace. They totally mop the floor with God's holy name. Notice this. They not only made idols and worshiped them, but then Aaron said, let us declare a feast to the Lord. First two commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourselves an idol. And Israel did. It's the first thing that they did. Amazingly, God would, re- would later, he would relent of his anger, of his displeasure. And by his grace, he would later on renew the covenant with Israel. Now, people did die for this sin. You should read ahead in Exodus 32 and 33. People died for that sin without question, but the people as a whole were preserved. They were spared. And God renews his covenant with them. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 15. He says, this command is not too hard. Neither is it far off. In other words, this should not be so difficult, Israel. I've called you to obey the 10 commandments, not 10,000 commandments, just 10. And I've asked you to worship a certain way. I've given you all the tools, all the instruction. I've given everything. He says, it's not too hard. Neither is it far off. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. It's a famous covenant promise of God. I'm setting before you two options is what God says. I've set before you good and life or evil and death. A great way to teach your children about what sin is, is the reality that sin leads to death. Every sin leads to death if unchecked and unforgiven. God says, I have set before you evil and death or good and life. And what's amazing about this covenant renewal is that God does not see any problem with his law. It's not too hard. It's not impossibly hard. We're going through a catechism and one of the questions is, what is the purpose of God's law? And the answer given is that so that we will see our need for a savior. Which is true, but it's incomplete. The law is not just an arbitrary tool. It's not just a carrot dangling and say, look, I knew you couldn't jump that high. Now let me show you my savior. He gave a good law to create a good culture to deal with the problem of guilt, to deal with godly worship, to mediate his relationship with them. He says, it's not too hard. It's not far off. There's no problem with the law. The law is good. Do you know what the problem is? We read it in Psalm 53. They have altogether gone astray. There is none who seeks God, not even one. The problem is with us. We do not choose obedience In fact, we can't. Romans chapter 8 says that the mind set on the flesh cannot please God. It's not only that we don't, it's that we can't. The problem is with us. So if you can, stick your finger in Romans chapter 5, because this sermon is not all bad news. 
Romans chapter 5 teaches us that since Adam, death reigned until Moses. In other words, death affected every single person who ever lived, including our first parents, Adam and Eve. There is none who escaped death. And God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. So God in the garden gave a covenant. I hold before you life and good and death and evil. The same covenant God presented to Adam and Eve. He said, if you obey, you will live. And if you sin, you will die. And as we know, they chose rebellion. They chose sin and their own son murdered their second born. Adam and Eve experienced it firsthand. They were expelled from the garden and death reigned from Adam until Moses. That is, to some extent, we are still suffering under the covenant of works today. We will all die for the sins that we have committed. There are Christians who come to the Lord and yet suffer and die even as a consequence of their sin. It doesn't mean God has not forgiven them and restored them, but we are all suffering under that covenant, under the realities imposed by that covenant because our parents and Israel chose uh, evil and death. So this passage in, in, in Romans 5 gives us hope. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All right, that explains the world right there. Sin spread to everyone because all sinned. Death spread to everyone because all sinned. Very simple. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, not in the likeness of Adam who was a type of the one who is to come. And then Paul goes on to describe in verse 15, the free gift, the opposite in, in, in the advent in Messiah. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace that is in one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is the point. So in Adam, we were all under sin and death. But then we learn that a new Adam came. A second Adam came. And where Adam failed at the tree in the Garden of Eden, Christ succeeded in temptation where Satan brought the same. The second Adam did not fall for Satan's trick. The second Adam did not fall for his manipulation. The second Adam said, No, Satan, I have heard from the Lord. And through that second Adam, we receive an inheritance. The second Adam, Advent, Messiah, comes to distribute a new inheritance. Adam passed on a lousy inheritance to us. That is sin and death. That's your inheritance from your first father, Adam. 
But a second Adam came to distribute a new inheritance. And that is the inheritance of the free gift of righteousness. Now again, we're not just talking about some abstract idea of righteousness or some mental pious state, but righteousness in God's eyes, righteousness being no sin. And not only no sin, but righteousness being God is, is obeyed at every command. Jesus said over and over, and he made this clear about his own life. In John 4, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 5, Jesus said, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. The works that I am doing. John 17, Jesus said, I have glorified your name by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. And so in Luke 22, when Jesus is tempted at the foot of the cross, he says, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Let me not have to do this. Yet, not my will, but your will, O Lord. In other words, Jesus was the man, the second Adam, who never, ever, ever didn't do the work that God had given him to do. Jesus is the true Adam. He's the true man. And through him, he births a new race, a new race of humanity who do not inherit death and evil, but they inherit righteousness and grace. So we are all born after the likeness of Adam. And those who come to Christ are reborn after the likeness of the second Adam, which is why Jesus said you need to be born again. Because your first birth is your birth into the first Adam. The new birth is your birth into the second Adam who was righteous. So Jesus Christ is our assurance. This is how significant it is that God said to Christ, I am pleased in him. Do you know how you can find assurance before God? Do you know how you can know that you have satisfied his demands? You go hide under Jesus. You take the inheritance that Jesus offers. He offers you righteousness. You trade in your filthy rags. Jesus bleeds and dies on behalf of you. And he gives to you his righteous garments and says, this is how God will see you now. These are your new clothes before God. I am the second Adam. I am giving you an inheritance of life and acceptance before God. And I love this. I'm going to close with uh, a couple words from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, Hebrews 4, 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that may, we may receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Coming to Jesus Christ entails one major reality, that you stop working to try to please God. You rest from your works. If you read earlier on in Hebrews chapter 4, it's a whole passage on the reality that because God rested from his works on the seventh day, so we must rest from our work. 
You know, if you're a Christian, you still have to work really hard at your job. That's not what that means. If you're a carpenter or whatever, you need to work hard at your job. But when you come to Christ, you lay down your works. When you want to plead with God for acceptance, you're not pulling your works out of your pockets. You're saying his work. Jesus' work is my plea. Jesus' life is my plea. Because it is only Christ over whom God declared, I am pleased with him. So we take his works for our own, and we thus rest from works. We rest from works. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, it says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. Even the good works that you do in Jesus Christ are not in order to get God's approval. They were created for you to walk in them. And the result is that we have a bold confidence to approach God. We are not fearful of approaching this holy God that the Israelites looked up on the mountain and saw consuming fire. We look up and we see acceptance. We see freedom. We are no longer under the wrath that he spelled out in the wilderness. We are no longer under God's burning wrath, although we deserved it. We now receive Jesus' blessing and his obedience as our own. Literally, God looks at you in Christ and sees Jesus' obedience. He looked on Christ at the cross and saw your disobedience. He looks on you and sees his obedience. His pleasing, perfect obedience. So my friends, what do we do with this? Number one, you must study Christ. Revel and enjoy his holiness because it is your own. It is your holiness. When you see his wisdom with the Pharisees, when you see his compassion for the weak, when you see his boldness in the truth, They belong to us. God sees us like that now. Christ is even in us. We don't even now follow after Christ. Christ lives in us. So enjoy and revel in Jesus' holiness. It is the basis of your approval before God. Uh, The second thing that we can do is that we can live outwardly focused lives. What I mean by that is we don't live obsessively introspective lives as Christians. You don't need to look at the Cheerios in your bowl in the morning and say, what is God saying to me? You don't need to agonize over every decision that God may strike you, but he may bless you. And I don't know where God's leading me. You don't have to live like that because God created you for good works beforehand that you would walk in them. That doesn't mean peer around every corner and be afraid that you're doing the wrong one because God has approved you. He has accepted you in Christ. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes 9, 7. It says, eat your bread and drink your wine for God has already approved what you do. Now, that is not a blanket license for sin. If you are hearing that, we need to talk more. But the reality is God has given you a life to live and you ought to do it with joy. Whether or not you eat bread or drink wine is not the point. It is that you ought to enjoy and walk in the things that God has given you and, and do everything as unto him. Do it in worship of him. 
Number three, we need to recognize that life actually matters. Christianity is not just about removing you from the earth and then launching you up to heaven in, in a secret rapture. That's not what Christianity is about. What we recognize is that life really matters. Jesus turned real water into real wine. Jesus healed real people in their real bodies. Jesus bled in a physical body and was raised in a physical body. What you do in this world does matter. The fact that we are not saved by our good works does not mean they are not significant. We ought to devote ourselves to good works knowing that they have been provided by God for the furtherance of his kingdom. We don't pursue good works chasing God's approval, but rather having his approval, we are motivated and propelled forward in joy to do what he's called us to do. Our good works mimic our Savior. And then, maybe I've already covered this, but our good works are not performed out of fear. We don't, we don't live our lives in fear because we recognize that that declaration, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, that declaration now is over you. God is pleased with you. Not because you're struggling in sin. Not because you haven't got your stuff together. God does not delight in sin. He does not delight in that which is messed up and disordered. But he delights in you because of Christ. And because of his delight in you, he will never let you go. And Philippians chapter 1 says, He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. In other words, because his pleasure rests upon you, he's not quitting until you're exactly like Jesus. And John says in 1 John, uh, when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him like he is. So the reality is that God sees us as perfect, which makes him close the gap between our actual morality and Jesus' morality. He is closing that gap in your life because he loves you. Colossians 3.17 and 1 Corinthians 10.31 is our closing verse. And this is sort of the, these are the, these are the signpost verses for the part of our uh, mission statement at the church, which is faithful cultivation. And that is whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God because you are not seeking his approval. So you can freely serve him, submitting yourself to him and enjoying that full acceptance. And the more you study Christ, the more adoring your life will be of him, who he is, his word, his character, his life. And the more uh, readily you will submit to his word and be transformed by it. Because every bit of who Christ is has been given to you as a gift. The free gift of grace and righteousness is yours in Christ, the second Adam. And so Advent answers the question, who can please God? One, Jesus. So you must receive his gift. You must receive his clothing. You must receive the free gift of righteousness so that God will be pleased in you. And he is. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. There is no more work to be done to please God. It's been done. So run to Christ, revel in Christ, enjoy Christ, and share Christ, for he is not only our hope, but the hope of nations.